Hello and welcome to the Pursuit Podcast. Today we're talking to Connor Lynch, a young architect who advocates for classical and beautiful designs. We cover many topics in today's episodes, such as why classical architecture is important and why it's not been taught in universities, why beauty doesn't need a salesman, fox hunting, and best of all, Connor's Series 3 Land Rover, which he drives around Hampshire with the roof off. I really enjoyed this episode, and I know you will too. Don't forget to subscribe. We have a new episode every week. In the meantime, enjoy. Connor Lynch, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You've been traveling a lot around Europe recently. What have you been doing? Yes, I've been traveling to architectural summer schools. One was in Bruges in Belgium and the other in Utrecht in the Netherlands. And there's a growing number of summer schools in Europe focusing on classical architecture. So the classical tradition hasn't been taught in universities for the last 80 years. And so there's a growing hunger for beauty in our towns and cities because as new developments go up, we see that beauty is so fundamentally missing. And these summer schools are students generally in early 20s mostly architectural students but there's other uh, disciplines and i spent a couple of days in utrecht and about four days in bruges teaching them drawing skills perspective and just general classical observations and where to seek knowledge to learn classical architecture so i taught them how i learned myself and how would you define classical architecture then to those uninitiated with your architectural ways well when we say classical architecture we think of columns and pediments and ancient rome and the classical world which from greece to rome and then after the fall of rome then the renaissance classical tradition or classical architecture is an inherited body of architecture that has come through generations and it's built upon. It's not a set of rules laid down a priori. It has been built upon over many generations and um, it's cumulative and you add to it. It's a rule of thumb and it leads to successful, beautiful buildings. You're not reinventing the wheel with every generation. And you say it hasn't been taught in schools for some 80 years. What else are they then teaching? The modern movement and modernism, when that came in and took over the universities, that was really the end of classical architecture being taught. And if it's not taught, it's really not going to be practiced. And from my experience in university, I went in straight after school, having loved Georgian, Victorian houses growing up. I went into university and I was told, this isn't what we do anymore. And I accepted that. You come from school, you do what the teacher says. So in university, tends to follow through, um, at least in first year. My experience in university was that the classical tradition, beautiful buildings, essentially. When you walk around your town and city and you see sash windows, you see columns at doorways, buildings that sit comfortably beside each other. They don't seem to be competing. It's all in harmony. And it's a beautiful setting. And if you think of your city, and if you were producing postcards of your city, think of those places in your city, you would take those photographs. And most likely, it's going to have old buildings. These weren't always old buildings in the sense that it was continuous tradition. 
which was ended really around the Second World War, um, universities became places where modernism was the prevailing dogma and continues today. When I was in university, they had essentially banned classical architecture. Um, there's a thing called a crit, so a presentation. As an architectural student, you present your design to the professors, to the lecturers, and to your colleagues um, at the end or throughout a semester. And I remember the first time I produced a classical design, my professors, they said, this is pastiche. That's a word you'll hear a lot. This is pastiche. It's immoral. It's invalid. And they had a great problem with it. And they responded with such vitriol. I was so surprised because I was quite an innocent building. It was in a country estate. I thought a classical folly style would be perfectly suitable. But from there, they had laid the seed because I wanted to investigate this further. Why this response? And in the next semester, they prescribed us to read, review a book called Modern Architecture Since 1900. And there was a chapter in that which had Quinlan Terry's buildings, Richmond Riverside, built in the 1980s. It's a series of classical buildings. And I was astonished that these were built in the 1980s. They looked like they were built in the 17th, 18th century. And I investigated further, and that led me down the rabbit hole of other classical architects that were practicing today. And this completely ran contrary to what I was told in university, which was, this isn't practiced nowadays. And I'd always wanted to design classical buildings. I accepted I couldn't. And here I am seeing architects today designing in this style. So the following semester, I did design old classical scheme and my professor they turned their chairs away from the presentation and had a discussion amongst themselves about why traditional architecture is immoral invalid and all sorts of things like that and i was standing there red-faced in front of all my colleagues of course expecting a fail which i did i had to repeat that semester during the summer but it taught me a lot because it forced me to teach myself. I went into the archive. Rather than learning in university where this was verboten, I went into the archive, found the old books, and I used those as my teachers. As had been done in previous generations, I just went back to where I thought was a good source, and I copied, I drew, I measured drawings and reproduced them. I read why buildings are designed in a certain way. And from that, started to learn classical architecture, what it's all about. And the one thing I'll say to anyone who wants to become an architect was going in this direction is drawing is the best way to learn. Not reading. You can, of course, reading is, is great. But drawing is the best way because it's training your eye. When you draw a building, that's when you truly see it. It's only when you draw it, your eye picks up every detail because you have to commit that to paper. When you're looking at a building, when you photograph a building, if someone covered that photograph and said, now draw it, you would miss out on a lot of that composition. But if you're sitting in front of it, or you're looking at a photograph and you're reproducing it, you have to pick it all up. So you're training your eye. And if you do that, However many times, that is a sure way to learn architecture.
And what do you think the reason for the vitriol from your uh, lecturers and professors in their response to what you were producing? What What's so bad about classical architecture? I think it's ideological. It's an ism, modernism. And one of the founding principles of that, I suppose, is the rejection of the classical world, the heritage traditions of architecture. And so that's so fundamental to it that to accept students designed in this way to them to reject their architectural ideology. For example, now you, you do get the extraordinary situations where we have to design a fountain and every student designed the most bizarre abstract fountain that looks nothing like a fountain you'd want to see in a public park or anything like that. And they encouraged this way of designing. I decided to design a fountain that was a plinth classical plinth with four statues holding up a bowl. So the water rose from the top, dropped through the centre, and it came out on the four sides. One of the lecturers told me that my design was promoting the reintroduction of slavery because I had statues holding up a, a vase, up a, a bowl, which showed that did they consent to holding up this bowl? Well, this is the sort of conversation, which is extraordinary. But i felt that, although they failed me for that project, when all these fountains were left outside in the courtyard of the university, there was a skip and the men looking after the grounds threw all the other projects in the skip, but they moved my plinth to their small garden area where they have a, have a flag at lunchtime, whatever it is, as a sort of monument to beautify that small area they had. And that, to me, was the, that I certainly did part of that assignment. And you recently uh, went viral for posting on a similar thing. Was it Bannett train station that they posted their new over the railway? And you posted in response and said, why not make it more beautiful with a, with a drawing of your own? Yes. So I saw this photograph. Someone had retweeted it. I couldn't believe that they were advertising this as something that they're proud of. I thought someone had taken the photograph to denigrate who built it or the railway network, whoever was responsible. I decided just to do a sketch of exactly what they built, but so keeping the composition really what they have designed, but changing it to be more easy on the eye. So the introduction of arches, plinth and creating a tower rather than a than shaft. Looking at a brief Google search of, say, Victorian, Georgian, British railway stations, and you pick up on small little details that were suitable to this composition. A quick pencil sketch, put it online, that's all it needs, and it gets people thinking and talking, which was the primary aim, to see that there is an alternative. And I will say that any time I post these things on Twitter, generally always very positive response that this is a better way of doing it than what was built. But the only objections tend to come from architects. Now this is, I think, because they have gone through five years, six years maybe, of university in education, and I don't use the word lightly, indoctrination. I only say that because I went through university and that's honestly what it is. And you come out the other end of that system with a knee-jerk reaction to classical proposals. When you see someone build, design, propose something in the tradition of architecture, 
not repeating the 1830s, not repeating what we built in the 1750s. We're not repeating the past. We're taking what's best from the past and bringing it forward. So what didn't work, maybe poor insulation perhaps, or drafty windows or gutters that maybe fell apart, we're not bringing that forward. But we are bringing forward high ceilings, beautiful cornices, um, the proportions of the facade, which no matter what age you're in, this is a beautiful, objectively beautiful facade. Um, yes, the biggest objection I found came from architects. So it's, it's no surprise when I see that. Uh, the town I live in, like any town, there's the uh, Torian station houses and bank house, and then there's the two up, two down pebble dash terraces, and then there's the new build blank white concrete houses. And every time any Victorian house comes on for sale, it always goes quickly. It always goes for more than the asking price, and it always sells for far higher overall than any other building. And it always makes me laugh because these are often windows, but they're single glazed. They're very poorly insulated and rather impractical, but it's just a beauty element. People just go mad for it. Do you find that a lot with all the work that you do? Yes. When we talk about sustainability nowadays, which is a very popular concern, beauty is not considered part of the equation. Whereas I would say that longevity, that is true sustainability. If you build something that will last, that is sustainable inherently. And beauty builds sustainability into a house. What I mean by that is take a railing, a simple railing outside a house, guarding a front garden, say. If that has ornament, say, below the, the finials, it has finials running along the top, and there's a sense of a plinth at the base, and there's capping at the top and bottom of the shaft, and it's a handsome proportion. Think of the Georgian Victorian railing. When that degrades, as everything does in the weather, that its beauty is the reason someone will look at it and say, this should be repaired. I'm going to sand this down and repaint it. Whereas if you have a bland, minimalist, just nothing railing, as soon as that degrades, the likelihood of someone going to the trouble of drastically restoring it, it just won't happen. They'll more than likely just cut it out and replace it with probably like for like. Beauty does speak to future generations and the fact that we look at a building that's 300 years old or 2000 years old, we still find it beautiful. That shows you that it is objective and it's not in the eye of the builder. And do you think your advocation for beauty in the architectural space is why the followers that you have on social media are so receptive? Beauty is not hard to sell. It speaks for itself. It doesn't need a long description. If you design a beautiful house, all you have to say is design for a new house. You don't have to explain through exhaustive text as to why this is interesting. There's no trick or novelty which may seem fascinating on first glance, such as the house cantilevers over the parking bay or something like that. And, you know, in 2010, people think, gosh, isn't that very clever? This is a cutting-edge house. But by 2023, they think this is a bit dated and those edges are not weathering properly as a novelty, novelty like a joke, it wears off. And once it wears off, it ages very badly. If you were to counter your argument, for example, of embracing these traditional ways of designing houses, then what would you say to people who then 
think that you're against progress and against innovation? Yes. So innovation, in terms of design and aesthetics, there's always avant-garde. There's always um, the architects, the exceptions that they have a creativity that sort of deviates completely from the convention is. And I'd say that's throughout history. There's avant-garde. The trouble is that the avant-garde became the convention. And so to be avant-garde today is to design a traditional, a classical house. I don't usually use the term traditional, I just call it architecture. I think when you call it traditional architecture, it has connotations you think of certain types of buildings. When I'm just talking about architecture in general, whether it's Gothic, classical, a cottage, country house, whatever it might be. And then in terms of innovation, when looking at an 1890s house, comparing it to a 1790s to a 1690s, there are things that will carry through, such as good proportions. We still use masonry. There are many timber and natural materials, weathering against the elements. But through the ages, we have innovations which over time prove themselves. And if they are, if they do serve their purpose well, they become part of architecture. They become part of the convention. So it's not traditional architecture or the tradition has never been against innovation because without innovation, we wouldn't be where we are. And you post a lot about country houses. Why is that? Growing up, I've always loved country houses. I think that country estate, uh, the landscape where you have a parkland, mature trees, a winding avenue up to the house, it's one of those special places that the building and the landscape around it are in unison. It's theatrical from the gate to the front door of the house. It's all designed according to how you're going to perceive it. So what I mean by that is from the approach, it might wind towards the house, which you see in the distance, and then it brings you through a forest and you can't see the house until all of a sudden pop out and the house is in front of you. So it gives that sense of anticipation. Country houses are also the built, the, I suppose the architectural manifest of the family generally an old family who has built them. So that's another reason I find them so interesting, is that the how rooted they are in their place, that the same family has lived and changed with the house for maybe a thousand years. And sadly, a lot of houses, great country houses, were demolished in the 1950s, 60s, for many reasons, punitive taxation, um, death duties, all sorts of things like that. Where do you think yes. has the best country houses? Which region of the United Kingdom? Generally speaking, in terms of the amount of just handsome country piles, the home counties tend to have the most, simply because it would be the country house and then it would be the townhouse in London, and it's within reach. Yeah, I think in northern England, there are some beautiful country houses. Chatsworth, for example. Basildon Bark in Berkshire. Um, these houses, of course, are you can visit National Trust or Historic Houses Association. There's a lot of these houses you can visit. And you're often seen driving from country house to country house in your Land Rover. Is it a is it a Series One or a Series Two? It's Series Three, 1972. Very good fun. I take the roof off in spring, and I 
have no roof throughout the summer months, which when it rains, it rains. You have a coat on, a hat, you know, so be it. Yeah, it's good fun. It's also tax exempt and take, take it off road a lot. I'm part of the Georgian group in London, the Young Georgians. So if you're under 35 and you're interested in built heritage of, of Britain and uh, also the Georgian period, I would recommend you join the Georgian group and the Young Georgians. We have outings throughout the summer months and talks in the winter months in London, Fitzroy Square, um, and also a very good Christmas party. So it's good to get a lot of people together, have this shared interest. The Land Rover, when we went down to Hampshire, the Land Rover was part of that. So um, there was probably maybe seven of us in the Land Rover going from house to house, and there was a fleet of cars. So. Did you ever have any mechanicals with it? No, if you keep it oiled, it serves you well. Yeah, no, touch wood, it has never broken down on me. And I use it almost every day. Is it your commuter, or do you, do you have another car in which you commute in? Um, I do commute in it, yes. I only have a short commute of about five minutes, so it's perfect for that. And I use it in the in the winter months. I have to see horses and hounds in, on Saturday morning. The Land Rover, in fact, is one of those things that I saw and I'd been in them as a kid. Then when I was looking to get a car, I saw the Land Rover and I thought, well, why don't I get one of those? I've always liked those. And of course, everyone said, get one of those when you've retired or later on, you know, get something more practical now. And I thought, uh, there's no point waiting, just get it now. And so I've been driving that ever since. And you touched on there, Brandon, the, the winter months for horses and hounds. That's, is that activity in which you like to partake in? Yes, so we could have a whole discussion about um, horses and hounds and the hunt meet. It's really a beautiful scene in the countryside and so rooted in the land and the community of the countryside. It brings everyone together, particularly in those dark months, and especially for older people who are li perhaps living more isolated. Um, so in a human sense, it's, it's really bringing all generations together and the countryside from all walks of life together. You could have a granddaughter who's nine years old, grandmother who's 90, and they're both riding out together. And it's, it's really something special. I had a conversation with Jamie Blackett uh, a few weeks ago. He's a conservationist, and he runs the hunt up in southwest Scotland. And I was quizzing him all about the ethics of hunting. Hopefully I could get a, an angle on him. But everything which he laid out seemed to stack up very well from the community side, from the social side, and even of the ethics of the, the fox itself. Obviously this is pre-ban. Foxes were evolved to be hunted. It's their nature to be chased down. And then with a hunt, it's very binary as well. It either dies or it doesn't. You know, you're saying that when, if he was out lamping with a rifle or something, it's he could injure the fox or and he just said it was actually more of an ethical way about approaching things and on top of that as a community and everyone's involved yes there's a lot of misconceptions about hunting and all that but touched on everything there really that the fox is a hunter himself he understands how scent works he understands the vagaries of scent i've seen a fox now this is pre-ban i've seen a fox um in ireland as well where hunting is, is not banned. 
run up a hill across a field and he will look back and see where the hounds are going and he will backtrack on his line because he understands that they're hunting scent because he hunts scent. So it's the same same rules. And he's employing his natural defenses against this. This is why we say cunning like a fox. There is a reason to that. A cunning, healthy fox will outwit a pack of hounds almost all the time. Hounds will catch up with an ill or infirm fox um, or fox that's injured by uh, a gunshot. And in terms of injuring, yes, when it comes to other forms of pest control, a fox can become injured or you can kill healthy foxes. Whereas with hounds, there's no injury. A fox either dies instantaneously by the lead hound, as you see in the wild of Africa, you see a lion biting the neck of a gazelle or something like that. The jaw of a hound is so incredibly strong, it slaps the neck instantly. So it's either instant or it, is, it evades capture without injury. So there's no in-between in that regard. It also disperses a fox population. So if the food supply cannot support that population in that area, hounds crossing that area will disperse them, leading to a healthier population that can be supported. It's not the people that are hunting, it's hounds. So if there's 50 people out or one person out, that makes no difference. We are following hounds. Hounds are hunting. And for that reason, a fox and the quarry that is being pursued buys its natural defences, can use its instincts, its wit and its nature, all in its own defence. Whereas when an alien technology is used, they have no way of counteracting that. And so that's why other forms of pest control, if injury and healthy versus ill foxes are your interest, other forms are less humane in that regard. But from speaking to a lot of the people that are very motivated against it, I came across an anti-hunting protest once, and I was talking to them out of interest. We did have a civilised dialogue about it. I discovered that when it got down to it, when I spoke about the different areas, that they would say, oh, you back a fox into the corner and rip it apart. There's no corners in the countryside, I can assure you. There's no backing into a corner. And I did hear that quite a bit because it speaks to the urban mind where it's all walls and buildings and corners, which is not the case, of course, in the countryside. But they tend to fall back on, but it's just tops. It's just Tories on horses. And it was, you could see as clear as light day that this was political. And it, for a lot of them, it was just bog-standard class war. I believe Tony Blair, in fact, um, regretted the Hunting Act in his memoirs. And it was said at the time that it was brought in as a way to uh, give something to the backbenchers for them to support the war in Iraq. Now, I was incredibly young at the time, so I, you know, I'm just looking at what I've read years later. But... Um, it's, it is a shame that it was brought in because there's no need for politics in the countryside. The idea that hunting is Tory is absurd. Um, it's not a political thing. People are out there from all walks of life 
and are all interests for whatever reason. Some people are there, they like the horses, some people put the company, others to see hounds work and so on, liking the aesthetic. But the point is it brings everyone together, it's a tradition and it does throw you into uh, a sort of pre-agrarian existence. It's a pre-industrial experience, um, a very special thing. I have to say, cold January morning when the dew is still on the grass and you have the mist across the landscape and there's not a sound in the air and you see the outline of the huntsman just through the, the mist and then through the woods you hear that cry of hands, the first, the second, the third, and it comes into a crescendo roar and they're all going in one direction, followed by the horn, and then the thunder of hooves catching up with the huntsman are taken behind. It's a surreal, magical experience, which I, I first experienced when I was 10 years old. From that moment, it, I was captivated. Connor Lynch, ever the artist, he was painting a beautiful photo there of the hunt in the morning. If I was a client of Connor Lynch and I have 10 acres of prime Scottish land in which I would like to build a house, what's the process that we would go through as client and architect? Well, it's like we surveyed house on the site if, if it's you want to keep or if it's an unsightly house that was built in the last 40 years and you want to replace it. So let's say if it is a house you want to replace and um, the, the interest from the council will, of course, be the footprint of that house and the ridge height of the roof. What we would do is start off by having a chat about what you're interested in achieving, how big the family is for the house, and what styles of architecture you're interested in. Also, what is suitable to the site in terms of styles. So looking at local precedent, we would visit the villages nearby, other country houses in the county, and you'd start to build up characteristics of that place and start to build up a palette of materials. This, before you've even applied a style as such or started designing, you have ingredients to work with in your kitchen, so to speak. And we would start a sketch scheme. We design the elevations, maybe a perspective of what it might look like from a distance, just to get the ball rolling and see is this direction you want to take it in. And it might have a few different iterations in discussion with you. Once it's got to a point that you're happy with, this is really now the house of your dreams, this is what you want to build, uh, we talk to the council and we open a pre-application, which would open the discussion with the council as to what is likely to be flagged during planning, if they have any objections. It also brings them brings them on board before an application is formally submitted. So it's not landing something then on their desk out of blue. They are part of the process because, of course, you need council permission to build. Um, it's important to build a good relationship with the council and bring them in at an early stage and show them what your intentions are, what you're thinking about. Generally, if you're building something beautiful and Hopefully you have council that also love this part of the country and perhaps they're from the local town, whatever it might be, but that 
they will be excited by that. However, there are councils across the country that will object to new classical proposals, such as that Thanos railway station earlier, as pastiche. They will say this is a pastiche project and it's not innovative, meaning when they say innovative, what they're thinking of is a glass, steel, concrete concoction. Whereas there's no legislation to bar you from design from a style. So that's why not all councils, of course, have that that rule, so to speak. But it is out there and you will have roadblocks in placed in front of you because you're designing according to the local tradition. So to the untrained eye, what things can we look out for when identifying a Tudor or a Georgian or a Victorian or a postmodern house? As a telltale sign, there's so many small details that I could see a Tudor house and I could tell you it's a Tudor house or it's an 1860s Tudor house. But for me to describe it, I would be saying things such as how were the windows constructed? And although the overall composition might be Tudor, there are telltale signs. You cannot escape your age. So there are telltale signs. How did they do the guttering? How did they do the windows? And that's the immediate giveaway that this is a much newer house, or that might tell you what period it is. I couldn't describe in a sentence how you distinguish between these different things other than saying maybe take 10 buildings from mid-Georgian, 10 from Victorian, study them both, you yourself will start to learn the characteristics and you will then be able to flag those as you walk around, which makes uh, visiting places far more interesting. I will advise people that when you walk down your high street, do look up. A lot of people, we tend to look shop fronts and on the ground, but do look above the shop fronts and you will see a lot of handsome buildings. In recent years, well, I suppose in the last 20, 30 years, a lot of shop fronts are plastic and synthetic materials, and they don't lend themselves to a handsome aesthetic. But the building above might be a very beautiful red brick Edwardian house. Yeah, look up more. Is the Georgian era, in terms of architecture, probably your favourite? The Georgian period, yes. I think that, personally, if I, if I was told there was a red brick house um, in Hampshire, built in 1720, and it had stone dressings. That sentence alone would tell me that I'm dealing with a very beautiful house. I can't quite tell why this, the early Georgian, was particularly handsome, but also the late 17th century. So after the restoration of Charles II, you have 1660s to 1685, beautiful country houses such as Delton, Coles Hill, which was demolished in the 60s or 50s. You have Ashdown in Oxfordshire. These are Carolean houses, of course, in the, in the tradition of Charles II, in the, in the era of Charles II. And now in the era of Charles III, I'd love to see a, a renaissance of Carolean style. So that is a three or a four-story. That's three-story with a lived-in attic as such, with dormer windows. So a three-story country house, a tall country house with a cupola on the, the roof, which is a lantern, but also a way of getting to the roof. I designed one of those, posted it on Instagram and Twitter, just also to open the, the conversation to, to show that we can 
we can design like this, there's nothing stopping us. Nothing stopping us but the will to do it. And speaking of King Charles III, are you very much behind his Poundbury project? Yes, absolutely. I think that without King Charles, the revival of beautiful architecture wouldn't be where it is without his efforts. And he put his head above the parapet when it was very unfashionable to do so. And he has had nothing but backlash ever since from the architectural establishment. I think that Poundbury is going to mature very well, very gracefully, and it keeps proving critics wrong. Um, and in terms of developers, developers see that it sells. And as developers interested in speculative housing, when you see a product that sells, they want to copy Poundbury, and in a lot of cases, unsuccessfully. But there is a growing uh, trend towards traditional and beautiful housing. Um, Nans Leiden in Newquay is also torn a grain in Scotland. Um, um, I think it's going to keep growing. So, if you're an arch if you're a young architect and you're considering, is this the route to take? business is booming, it's getting more popular, and it's only going up, and it's going up gradually at a very healthy rate, and the long last, it's not a flash in the pan, it's very easy to sell, because it sells itself, you don't, a beautiful house doesn't need a salesman, you, you could be, you should be able to just see it for yourself, walk around, and you know, from the aesthetics, it, like this is a beautiful house, it doesn't have to be explained by the architect. And if this conversation has piqued the architectural interest in someone, where or what would you advise them to look or read? I would recommend not so much reading, but drawing from. Now, from my position, when I taught myself, one of the books I bought was Vitruvius Britannicus, which is an 18th century pattern book of country houses. And I reproduced a few drawings from that. And by reproducing them, I started to learn proportion and learn relationship between window and door and the ideal height of a roof and where the pitch of a roof comes in. You start to pick up all these things when drawing. So um, Vitruvius Britannicus, I'd also recommend Roger Scruton's book which is classical principles in an age of nihilism. I think that's what it's called. But if you type that into Google, you should be able to find it. Yes, I don't have my list with me, but I must post that on Twitter. Where can people find that Twitter account? Uh, my Twitter and Instagram are the same username, so at C underscore K underscore Lynch. And Instagram and Twitter, I post country houses and drawings and places I visit. Terrific. Connor Lynch, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Joe, very much for having me.